The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity titled Achieving Innovation in CLL Care, Evidence-Informed Choices with Targeted Options and Next Steps in Disease Management. Access the entire activity and complete the post-test at peerview.com forward slash FZU 860. Downloadable slides and practice aids are also available. Hello, everyone. Good afternoon. Um, good morning for those of you who are in a different time zone and for good evening for those of you in different time zones again. Welcome to the session where we're going to be talking about achieving innovation in CLL care. And we're going to be talking today about evidence-based choices for the targeted options and the next steps in disease management in CLL. Um, I'm John Gribben. I've got a very esteemed faculty with me today, uh, Farouk uh, and Nicole. And joining us online in California is Tom Kipps. So good morning, Tom. We'll talk to you very shortly. Hi, Tom. Good to see you. Hello. See you. It's good to see everyone. I'm sorry Absolutely. I can't be with you. Well, we're sorry we can't be in California. <laughs> Hopefully we'll get Ash back there very soon. Now, what's very clear is that CLL is one of those areas which has been completely revolutionized by the new agents which are available. And what you'll see here is that both in Europe and in the USA, uh, we have incorporated these new novel agents into the treatment algorithms. Uh, they're in the ESMO guidelines on the top, as well as the NCCN guidelines in the bottom. What you'll also see, although it's quite hard to read in these smaller slides, but we're going to be discussing a great deal, is how we can use the prognostic markers, the immunoglobulin mutational status, the TP53 status, to help us uh, identify the ideal treatment approach for the ideal patient, looking to see how we can, if you like, individualize the treatment for our CLL patients based upon these markers and the importance that we put in making sure that we have all the information required. That's also true in the recommendations for the relapsed and refractory disease, uh, which Nicole's gonna be going through in more detail, but of course, first and second generation BTK inhibitors, as well as venetoclax, are incorporated into both the European and the North American guidelines for the patients with relapsed CLL, as well as treatment naive. Here's the current uh, FDA approval status of these agents, um, those uh, already licensed and those in late stage development. And you'll see, of course, that we have choices in our BTK inhibitors. We've got newer uh, BTK inhibitors uh, close to approval, venetoclax licensed. We have um, two of the three uh, PI3 kinase inhibitors approved and one very close to approval that is Embrolizib. Now, despite all these advances that have been made, um, we know uh, from the real-world data, some of which, of course, is being presented at ASH this year, that there are a, there's a significant gap in really doing the appropriate prognostic tests in terms of looking to individualize the treatment approach for individual patients. And what you'll see at the, at the, the, the sessions being presented here uh, are you know, a large cohort of real-world data showing there's a significant gap in the prognostic testing. And in the upper study, more than half of the patients did not receive that uh, testing. The, uh, obviously the case that suboptimal testing was also more common in vulnerable patients. 
And then from the informed CLL registry data, we'll see that one third of patients with uh, deletion 17 P or TP53 mutations did not receive the NCCN recommended regimens in that therapy, suggesting that a good proportion of these patients may have received suboptimal treatment as their frontline therapy in particular. Now, we're very delighted today to be partnering with the CLL Society, which we all know is an excellent resource for professionals, CLL patients and caregivers. So we encourage uh, patients and their uh, caregivers to visit the CLLsociety.org to receive CLL-specific education and uh, uh, find support. So you as professionals, other healthcare professionals within your offices and patients can utilize that website to receive real up-to-date information on new CLL research findings and treatment options. Now this society provides free resources for patients and their caregivers, including uh, support groups, uh, patient-friendly CLL-specific education, review of the most, research, uh, most recent research presented at blood cancer conferences, and of course it will all be updated after this meeting, uh, view email alerts, uh, etc. There's Ask the Expert programs uh, where patients uh, are able to receive email responses from uh, uh, physicians, nurses, lab scientists and pharmacists, etc. And we have CLL-specific COVID-19 updates and guidelines. And um, a whole test before treat, you've got the little red bracelets on your, on your tables. You can see the remember to test before treat uh, approach that the CLL Society is using to remind us all what we should be doing uh, to get into this. It's one of the kind of big uh, advantages, isn't it, uh, guys, of the fact that with our CLL patients where we are still watching and wait, that you do have plenty of time usually to really inform patients on not just what you're doing, but why you are doing it. And I think we all appreciate that our patients are so much better educated than they were in the past. And thanks to organizations like the CLL Society that we're able to uh, provide that kind of information. But it makes a real difference to be able to sit down with patients and really have them understand why we are talking about what we're doing and why we're doing it that way. So a big thank you to our partners at the CLL Society. Um, and, um, you know, a whole everything in there is about making sure that our patients no longer have to miss out on the optimal treatment approaches we can have for them. So with that said, uh, today's agenda, we are going to um, have a seminar. We're going to do it in a tumor board session format, looking at upfront management of unfavorable prognostic subgroups, as well as favorable subgroups. We'll talk about what if scenarios, about how things might change based upon if the patient did or did not have uh, appropriate uh, biomarker uh, findings. We're Cole's going to talk about the strategies for appropriate and safe therapeutic sequencing. How do we think in the era of having targeted therapies? What's the next line of therapy that we would be offering for our patients? And then we're going to go on to, uh, with Farouk, uh, where combinations and CAR T cells might fit into uh, patient management going forward. And we're going to do this on a format of case-based discussions throughout the presentation. So I'm going to go straight into talking about uh, our evidence-based choices with targeted options. And I'm going to take you through this case of Theo, who is a 74-year-old man who now presents with symptomatic CLL and a degree of comorbidity.
His white blood count's 245 with lymphocytes of 235. He's a hemoglobin of 10.8, and his platelets are now 72, so he's got BNA stage 4 disease. He's got splenomegaly. He's got good performance status, does have a mildly impaired creatinine clearance, and has the comorbidities of COPD and hypertension here. Now, his testing for the scenario we're going to start with is that he has unmutated immunoglobulin genes, but no TP53 mutation. So obviously, we can have, as we're getting to this patient, and he now requires treatment, various treatment options which are available to us, which could be continuous BTK inhibitor therapy, fixed duration therapy with venetoclax or abinutuzumab, which we'll call VENG, or potentially something else. So Nicole, uh, you must see these patients in your clinic all the time. What's your kind of mindset about how you're going to be discussing how you're going to treat such a patient? I mean, this patient has many options. He's unmutated, but he does not have a TP53 mutation. And so, you know, here we then can talk about, you know, lifestyle issues, continuous therapy versus fixed duration therapy. So either of these, I think, are suitable for this patient. I think he's got multiple options. And then depending upon his social circumstances and preferences of therapy, um, he can do either continuous BTK or fixed duration. And is there something else you'd be considering other than those approaches for this? Even his unmutated immunoglobulin, I avoid chemoimmunotherapy, yeah. so I would not be doing chemoimmunotherapy in this okay. individual. Sure. Clinical trials, of course, are acceptable, um, but uh, you know, other than that, I would, I would when we talk about uh, FDA-approved, uh, either of those two options are fine. I think actually, on that note, I think all of us are seeing still there's a, the odd clinical trial that still allows TP53 patients, mutated patients, to be enrolled in a therapy where they could get chemoimmunotherapy. And I think most of us now believe that's actually wrong. And there should be an exclusion for that subgroup going into those trials. Absolutely. Not every clinical trial is appropriate for every patient. Yeah, I agree sure. with you there. Yeah, perfect. So let's just think for a moment. What if we had exactly the same scenario, but this time when we did TP53 mutation analysis, we found the mutation. So for, for, for how would that change your approach to this patient? Um, so I agree with the, what Nicole said. I think for the first scenario, all of those options are perfectly reasonable. In the second scenario, my personal preference has been to go with a continuous BTK inhibitor therapy. Um, and we'll talk about all the data and why I'm, I'm leaning towards that. But if somebody wants to make an argument of doing WENG, that's not unreasonable. Uh, one thing unique about this particular case is um, the thing that I uh, have a challenge with, and I deal with it on an ongoing basis, is if, especially if the patient is being referred to me and I haven't had a chance to develop a relationship with the patient and explain the disease, is the white count. And uh, the white count in this case is 245, which causes a lot of anxiety for the patient. And then starting them on a BTK inhibitor, I have to be very clear that I expect that to go up to maybe 400 or 350, but you'll feel better and the spleen will improve, shrink, and the lymph nodes will get better. So I think the whole lymphocytosis story in some patients um, can be a little challenging, and we have to convince them and explain it to them. But other than that, I would tend to uh, go with the BTK inhibitor-based either combination therapy or single-agent therapy. 
So what you're hearing then, our recommendations are, as Nicole said, for this particular patient, we can um, uh, we, that both BTK inhibitor therapy or fixed duration therapy with netoclax venetuzumab are reasonable treatment options for the patients. Probably, I think many of us were thinking that there were considerations at the height of the COVID pandemic, and maybe now again would be thinking about um, it was easier to manage a BTK inhibitor and we weren't having to use an anti-CD20 monoclonal antibody. But um, there's a whole series of my patients, I was waiting for it to be a safer time to do it that I've now got started on VENG and now with Omicron, I'm thinking, oh my goodness, what have I done? But I've got a whole series of patients on there. Of course, you've also got that issue to consider of the onloading of VENG requires weekly visits from the patients for a number of nine weeks of unloading that regimen, but that's something for you to consider based upon the, the considerations of the pandemic right at the time you're starting therapy. Clearly, what's important here is being able to consider the patient preferences. The patient, in my mind, should always be involved in trying to make that decision. Now, you can only get your patients involved in making the decision uh, as long as they have all the right information. And it seems like an easy thing to say, well, of course, people are going to want one year of therapy versus lifelong therapy. That's an easy choice to make, but it's not so easy to make once you see all of the data we're going to be talking about. And that's why it's so important that we present this data in the appropriate way for our patient group. In the setting of TP53 mutations, as we've just heard, we consider that continuous BTK therapy seems to be the most highly active in, in, in that subgroup of patients and represents probably the best, most reasonable choice. And again, remember, we've got choices of BTK inhibitors to consider. Certainly, uh, Venji is an active alternative, and I'll show you that data in a moment. But the important thing to stress here, there is absolutely no role for chemoimmunotherapy in that subgroup of patients. And I think what you're hearing from us is very little, if any, role for chemoimmunotherapy, even in the unmutated patient who does not have a 17p deletion. So here are you know, the evidence that we are starting to see as to why we are making these decisions. There are a whole variety of phase three randomized trials now that have looked at the novel agents versus chemoimmunotherapy. The ECOG trial, of course, looked at IR versus FCR. The Alliance trial looking at BR versus I or IR. The Illuminate trial looking at um, uh, uh, obinutuzumab plus chlorambucil versus obinutuzumab plus ibrutinib. Now, of course, what that we're looking at here is we've got three trials looking at ibrutinib, looking at the three optimal chemotherapy regimens based upon the fitness of the patient, so to speak. We've got data now on the Elevate um, uh, TN study looking at a calibrutinib or a calibrutinib plus abinutuzumab versus clomisilabinutuzumab, the Sequoia data on BR versus xanabrutinib, and of course the CLL14 data looking at that unfit group of patients uh, looking at um, uh, abinutuzumab plus chlorambucil versus venetoclax plus abinutuzumab. Now that trial did just look at the unfit patients, but on the basis of that, got licensing approval for, for also our fit patients to be able to consider that regimen. And that's something you'll also bear in mind. And here is the data looking at a, the, the scenario we've set up for, uh, for Theo. He has uh, an unmutated immunoglobulin gene. 
And here are the results of the three um, ibrutinib trials, which are presented and published now, looking at either ibrutinib versus chlorambisol for resonate, the Illuminate data looking at abinutuzumab plus uh, ibrutinib versus chlorambisol versus ibrutinib, or the Alliance data, the subgroup analysis looking at ibrutinib or ibrutinib plus rituximab versus BR. And what you'll see in each of these studies, there's a very clear progression-free survival benefit for this subgroup of patients to receive the novel agents versus con uh, receiving conventional chemotherapy or chemoimmunotherapy, which is, of course, why uh, you know, Nicole's choice in this setting was to go for this particular patient straight into novel therapy and not consider chemotherapy in that setting. Got actually now even overall survival data demonstrating the benefit of ibrutinib um, uh, and rituximab versus what we certainly consider to be our most effective chemotherapy, that is FCR, so very clear data. Now, in both the Alliance and the Illuminate studies, there's not yet an overall survival advantage, but I think many of us were impressed by the ECOG data we did see, particularly in this subgroup of patients, the overall survival advantage of looking at that setting. Here's the Sequoia data. You'll see that presented at this meeting on Sunday. Uh, this is a randomized trial looking at Xanabrutinib, not yet licensed, but very close to approval, we believe versus BR, and again, we're seeing that that median follow-up of 26.2 months, we might even see some more update on that at the session on Sunday, where we see a treatment benefit observed, observed for patients with unmutated immunoglobulin genes, the hazard ratio of 0.24. So very clearly, again, demonstrating the benefit for the novel agent over chemoimmunotherapy. In the setting of we had our imagined scenario that Theo might have a TP53 mutation, uh, just a reminder on the original pivotal trial from uh, pivotal data from Hartmut Donor's group in Ulm, demonstrating that those patients with the 17P deletions were the group of patients who were going to fear worst. And of course, that is true also with chemoimmunotherapy when we look at the CLL8 data with FCR. The approval for ibrutinib in the setting frontline with TP53 uh, uh, deleted or mutated CLL was, at the time it was licensed, was actually quite scant, but I think the, uh, the um, FDA and EMA did a great job of really looking at this data in a very pragmatic way. And it was very clear to all of us that this, this, these groups of drugs were, were game-changing in that very high-risk group of patients. Now we've got data now of a larger number of patients uh, looking at this. So this is the, the published data from uh, Adrian Wiesner's group at NIH looking at patients with 17P abnormality CLL, showing the really excellent overall uh, and survival and progression-free survival that can be achieved with um, ibrutinib in that setting. And of course, from the subgroup analyses of the pivotal trials, we've also now got data looking at the outcome. I've already alluded to the fact that nowadays I'd be kind of loath to be putting one of my patients onto a trial to be randomized to receive 
chemotherapy, uh, but we've got that kind of older data from the patients that were enrolled in these studies. And what you can clearly see here, now kind of building up to be quite nice numbers of patients in the Alliance Illuminate and Elevate trials, looking at the, the really excellent progression-free survival in TP53 subgroups that we could only have dreamed about a few years ago before the targeted therapies became available. Um, here is the long-term update from the Alliance trial that Jennifer Woyash is going to present on Monday. For those of you who are able to go to that session, it would be good to see this data presented in more detail than we see in the abstract. But Jennifer here demonstrating, of course, the benefit of the abrutinib regimen over uh, chemoimmunotherapy was consistent for all of the subgroups of patients. And of course, here also we see no difference between the abrutinib R versus the abrutinib alone in that setting, which is probably why most of us are considering using, either of you using an antibody with um, abrutinib in any of your patients? Or? No. Not typically. No, no kidding. I, I mean, if they're going to stay on chronic continuous therapy, I will typically avoid drop the antibody, unless there's a reason that they might need it, some sort of autoimmune hemolytic anemia, uh, or need a, a brisk improvement of their blood counts as they get started on their BTK. So, uh, so sometimes I will use the monoclonal antibody, uh, but, but in general, if they're going to stay on chronic continuous, and then the whole COVID, as you alluded to earlier, is a whole other factor, but yeah, typically absolutely. I don't. I'll come back to be thinking about uh, the... Um, the of course, we had seen um, on the Elevate trial uh, on the original presentation um, that it did appear as if the addition of abinutuzumab to a calibrutinib may have been beneficial, but we do not see that benefit when we look at the TP53 subgroup. So I think a lot of us do think if we're using a calibrutinib, whether there might be a benefit of adding abinutuzumab. I have to say right now, my practice is to be avoiding abinutuzumab in the setting of the COVID pandemic and trying to avoid a CD20 antibody. But I think we're all looking to see the subsequent follow-up on the Elevate studies to really get a handle on whether there might be subgroups of that, those, those patients who might benefit from the antibody, but certainly I'm not using it right now. Um, and of course, um, we also have uh, the update presented at the most recent EHA meeting that Omar al-Shawaf showed on the CLL14 data, looking at the fixed duration of venetoclax and abinutuzumab. Now, no one's going to say that, that in this subgroup of patients with TP53 abnormalities, this is not an active agent. You can see it here, the data yourself. But what is clear is there's a clear separation on the curves here between those who have P53 abnormalities and those that don't, with still quite relatively short data. So I think in terms of what you were saying before, I think most of us believe that a one-year fixed duration therapy is not sufficient therapy for these very high-risk patients with TP53 abnormalities, and we're seeing better outcomes with continuous therapy, which is our rationale for kind of thinking about in that way. Now, we've got further analysis on that subgroup also presented, and you'll see here, of course, that separation clearly appearing in terms of overall survival. And again, a difference in the overall survival between those who do and do not have uh, that, you know, um, a 17p deletion. Uh, clearly, it's superior to clarimacillabinutuzumab, but we've all clearly said none of us would consider using that combination in that setting. 
Clearly, at the moment, we don't have any randomized clinical trial data of looking at VG versus any of the BTK inhibitors. And we certainly don't have it for the TP53 subset. But I think looking at the data, and I know you're not supposed to extrapolate across studies, but I think looking at this data altogether, our conclusions would be that um, you know, this is something we should be looking to make, make decisions. And you're going to come back and talk about this later anyway. So what about novel combinations? Well, of course, uh, there are studies now that are looking at um, novel combinations. We've got these two classes of agents, our BTK inhibitors and our BCL2 inhibitors. And of course, there's a lot of clinical trial data out there on that, uh, you know, the fixed duration combinations. And I think most of us are very impressed by the very high response rates we see in this combination. I'm not going to dwell on this slide because you're going to come back and talk about this in more detail in your presentation later, but I'll just draw your attention here to the fact that we've seen at the last few meetings the results of various of the arms of the Captivate trial, but again, very high response rates in these very high-risk TP53 mutated CLL patients. And I draw your attention again now to the abstract being presented um, tomorrow morning, looking at the Xanabrutin of Venetoclax and Treatment Naive, RMD of the Sequoia trial, which will be there. And I kind of draw your attention to see if you've got the opportunity to go and see that or view it uh, back in your hotel room later. So just to recap where we are and just to kind of go through the evidence that we had supporting what all three of us said, and Tom will get you to come in later to get your views on various others of the patients. But what you heard was that we've got um, recommendations that uh, for, the, for a patient like Theo, assuming he did not have a TP53 mutation, continuous BTK uh, therapy or fixed duration venetoclax venetuzumab are reasonable options. Uh, we can consider uh, the patient preferences when making the decisions and individualizing therapy. And we all know, particularly for things like the CLL14 trial, we need longer follow-up to really see whether there continues to be any separation. But our conclusions are really supported by uh, pivotal phase three trials, resonate, elevate CLL14 to make those conclusions. In the setting, if our patient did have a TP53 mutation, but just remember, of course, you have to remember to do that testing, and it's absolutely vital that we should be testing our patients for their mutational status for immunoglobulin genes, as well as for TP53, as well, of course, as the deletion 17P. You've got to remember that not everyone who has a TP53 mutation, um, there's a subgroup of patients with deletion 17P that don't have the mutation, so you have to really do both together. But our recommendations on the use of the therapy and our view as to why we would favor in that setting a BTK inhibitor over venetoclax um, venetuzumab in that setting is supported by the results that we've seen in the trials. There's no randomized trial, as I said before, between VENG and a BTK inhibitor. But I think it's quite reasonable for us to, um, uh, to, to kind of do that type of comparison to help us make decisions. I'll just go on and remind you all again that based upon what we've been talking about so far about the importance of the mutational status and the TP53 mutational analysis that the CLL Society does offer a whole variety of educational materials on the importance of these prognostic factors for patients. 
They have an education toolkit to be looking at CLL staging and prognostic factors. You can share with your patients when discussing the treatment plan so they can understand why we consider it important that these tests are done. And you can learn more and order this at the website that's shown here on your slides. And I won't go through all the very small print because at my age, I can barely make that out from over here. <laughs> so we're now going to move on at this point on to be thinking about the more favorable risk CLL. And this is where we get to uh, draw Tom into uh, the discussion more and he'll give his presentation. But I'm just going to now consider that what would we do if instead of having um, an unmutated immunoglobulin genes, that when we did our analysis on Theo, we found he was mutated and had no TP53 abnormality, but was otherwise exactly the same. Would that in any way change uh, our, our, you know, what we're thinking about? So what if uh, Theo had presented with favorable risk uh, CLL? I'm not going to come back and ask Tom because there's a little delay going backwards and forwards to the video and Tom's going to be presenting all this data to you in just a moment. But Nicole, if I come back to you on this one, um, the treatment options that we have here for a mutated patient, um, obviously, would you consider chemoimmunotherapy in that setting? Tom's an older gentleman, correct? He's an older gentleman. <laughs> He's 74. So, well, we said he was reasonably fit. So, okay, maybe we'll take FCR out of the equation. Would you consider BR or clarimacillabinutuzumab in this setting? I mean, obviously, I've sort of moved away from chemoimmunotherapy in general. It's still a discussion that I think is fair to have. Most patients, in the end, having that discussion, even if they have favorable risk factors, usually don't choose chemoimmunotherapy. Um, so usually we're still talking to them about continuous either BTK or really combination therapy, uh, something that's time limited for them, again, barring the COVID situation um, or the discussion because some of them um, also need hospitalization when we do Benji, depending upon their white blood cell count uh, or their bulky lymph nodes. So, so patient preference still comes into play here. Um, but chemoimmunotherapy, I think, is fair to talk. 74 is really a little bit, you know, pushing it for B, for FCR. BR you can probably do. But again, I, I'm sort of moved away from chemoimmunotherapy, given a lot of the data that has been presented really from frontline that we've seen. Uh, although the, it's a fair question, given that we know that there's a subset of patients who did very well long-term with FCR who are mutated and favorable, albeit it's a small subset, but uh, they've gone a very, very long time and have done well. So I still think it's a fair conversation to hold. Sure. And for, so what if, for instance, Theo was now younger and his and clearance was better? <laughs> Would you consider FCR in such a patient? Do you think it might still have a role in this, in this group of mutated patients with favorable outcomes? I think it's a fair discussion uh, with the patient. Um, we need to inform them about the pros and cons of FCR therapy. Um, it's hard to argue with the sustained uh, remissions with FCR. Um, we do have long-term follow-up data with BTK inhibitors, and even seven, eight years out, the responses are looking pretty promising and sustained. Um, it obviously comes with uh, the added issue of taking a pill for the rest of your life versus, and also the toxicity of it, but the vast majority of those patients who take these agents and go beyond the first six months um, don't really have too many tolerability issues, and they're able to continue to take this without major problems. And most of these combinations are now looking very promising. Four years out, we're looking at 70 to 80 percent of the patients in a nice remission in disease control state. So 
uh, I feel that with the way that the field is moving forward, we can achieve the same lifespan for a young person without using FCR. And uh, that's just the argument for not using FCR and avoid the secondary myeloid neoplasm risk, which again has extremely poor outcomes. So I think it's not worth me taking the nine or 10% risk of having a secondary AMDS or AML. So that's why I don't personally use FCR. Sure. So Tom, I'm still not ignoring you, but I know we're going to see your presentation. I'm going to bring you back to have exactly this discussion with you uh, very shortly. So um, here are then the recommendations you've just been hearing about that um, uh, fixed duration venetoclax venetuzumab looks like a very attractive option for the mutated patients. Um, you're going to hear data thinking that novel combinations such as I plus V, now of course, I is approved here, venetoclax is approved here, so I'm guessing you can use the combination. In Europe, that combination is not yet licensed for use. Um, but uh, obviously, we're seeing the data from Captivate and Glow, and that licensing approval is being sought. Um, we wouldn't use FCR on this particular patient due to his patient fitness and his creatinine clearance. If he'd been younger, we would have the discussion with them, and you'll see the data in a moment why we would have that discussion. But I think more and more we're moving away from uh, chemoimmunotherapy, and I'm sure that's absolutely the case in California where patients have not wanted chemotherapy for as long as I've known Tom. So we'll see uh, in a moment what Tom has to say about that. So we're discussing a case that uh, expresses a mutated immunoglobulin gene. I'd like to discuss some of the implications of this. First, it's important for everyone to recognize that each uh, CLL cell uh, from each patient expresses only one type of immunoglobulin and is clonal. And half of all patients uh, use an antibody heavy chain variable region that is almost identical to those that they inherit from their parents with greater than 98% homology. This is called unmutated antibody genes. Uh, we know that the therapy is delayed until patients develop symptomatic disease or decline in marrow function with either anemia or thrombocytopenia. And if you look at this, patients with mutated antibody genes have a much more indolent course than patients with unmutated antibody genes. On average, from the time of diagnosis to therapy, patients with unmutated antibody genes require therapy within two to four years, whereas patients with mutated antibody genes require therapy generally within five to seven years after diagnosis. The differences in progression between patients that have mutated antibody genes versus unmutated antibody genes also translates to differences in survival. And as shown by the seminal study conducted over 20 years ago, it's clear that patients with mutated antibody genes actually survive on average longer than patients with unmutated antibody genes as shown by the graph on the left. And this seems a bit counterintuitive because you would think that the more mutated cells might be more malevolent. However, it must be recognized that the mutation is in the immunoglobulin genes. And these mutations are a natural consequence of the maturation of B cells in the germinal center as a consequence of the immune response. And as you see in this slide, there is the early B cell, the unmature B cell, that may enter into the germinal center depicted on the right side of the uh, slide. And those immature cells typically express unmutated antibody genes. Whereas if they go into the germinal center in response to antigen, their antibody genes may incur significant numbers of mutations as they make antibodies that are 
better selected to bind to the antigen that's inducing the immune response. Now, CLL cells originating from the earlier, less mature B cell express unmutated antibody genes. And CLL cells that are, are expressing the mutated antibody genes are derived from the more mature B cells that have actually gone through the process of somatic mutation and the immune response. So this becomes actually a signature of the cell of origin for uh, the leukemias. It's different for both and, and actually associates with differences in clinical outcome. Now we know that mutations can occur and we've seen many different mutations. Any one of these mutations may be in a small subset of patients. And we know that more mutations, particularly those that are associated with more uh, malevolent clinical course, are typically associated with patients who express unmutated antibody genes. So these mutations, particularly SF3B1, are mutations in TP53 or ATM or NOTCH1. You can see by the bar diagrams in the lower left-hand corner, these are actually present in a small percentage of patients, but with successive rounds of therapy tend to increase over time and are more deleterious. This has been noted in a variety of different clinical studies. Where you see red, you actually note that the association of the mutation is associated with a less favorable outcome. And in particular, on the upper uh, left-hand corner, you see the gene TP53. Mutations in TP53 are a very serious thing in patients with chronic lymphocytic leukemia, as this typically indicates that the patient may have a poor outcome in response to chemotherapy. And that's been noted in a number of clinical studies. And so it's important to recognize that mutations in TP53 may be something that you have to consider when deciding therapy. Now, what about therapy itself? We know that the expression of the mutated immunoglobulin genes typically confers an improved outcome after therapy. This is a hallmark study uh, done at the MZ Anderson with the uh, seminal study using fludarabine, cyclophosphamide, rituximab. And we noticed that those patients with mutated antibody genes typically enjoy a much better response with a long-term progression-free survival in a substantial fraction of the patients. And that compares with the progression-free survival of patients with unmutated antibody genes. This study also broke down these patients into whether they had high levels or low levels of serum beta-2 microglobulin level. And those patients that had very high levels of serum beta-2 microglobulin uh, in, in the blood with normal renal status typically fared less well than patients with low levels of serum beta-2 microglobulin. And it was better able to distinguish between patients that had mutated antibody genes. So assessing the beta-2 microglobin level might be the best approach. And we noticed that about a quarter of the patients may have very long progression-free survival, and about 80% of those patients express mutated antibody genes, <clears throat> meaning that it's possible to have a long progression-free survival after chemoimmunotherapy with the expression of mutated antibody genes. Now we have some improvements in therapy, and we've also noted that we can detect minimal residual disease down to less than one in 10,000 cells. And you can see here, those patients that had mutated antibody genes as represented by MIGHV at, uh, with no minimal detectable disease uh, at the level of 10 to the negative four had the best outcome. And that was even better than patients who had a similar response to therapy uh, but had unmutated antibody genes as shown by the brown line. And this is important to note because even though patients may achieve a very high level of response to chemoimmunotherapy, 
those patients that have mutated antibody genes may actually have a tendency to fare better. And the reason for this is clear. If you look at those patients who've cleared minimal residual disease and you follow them over time, those patients with mutated antibody genes have a longer time before you note recurrence of the clone by serial testing of the blood, as shown in this study, whereas unmutated antibody genes appears to occur at a very earlier time and therefore account for the relapse. Now we have now in this era, the advent of targeted therapies, which has certainly improved the outcome over chemoimmunotherapy. And in particular, this seminal trial with the brutinib compared to chlorambucil in older patients who did not have the deletion 17P was quite important and was responsible for the registration of ibrutinib as a drug for frontline therapy. We have the luxury now of seeing the long-term follow-up data. And as you see on the left, the treatment with ibrutinib clearly was superior to the treatment of chlorambucil over many months of observation. And on the right, we see that the progression-free survival appears not to depend upon the mutation status. So patients with mutated antibody genes as well as unmutated antibody genes appear to enjoy the same long progression-free survival. And this is carried out even after seven years of follow-up data as you see here. And so this is something to note. This may be able to minimize the differences between mutation status of uh, patients treated with ibrutinib. Now there's an important study that compared ibrutinib and rituximab therapy compared to the, the fludarabine cyclophosphamide rituximab therapy. And that was done by the ECOG trial. And what they noted was that patients who were treated with ibrutinib and rituximab actually fared better uh, in terms of progression-free survival. And so this clearly indicated that even in young fit patients, that there is an improvement in progression-free survival compared to patients treated with the more extensive chemotherapy regimen of FCR. I just want to mention this study because you can see that toxicities associated with chemotherapy are well known to all of us. These include uh, particularly cytopenias, anemia, thrombocytopenia, and neutropenia. In addition to neutropenic fever, in addition, there may be long-term myelosuppression that could be a, a source of morbidity for patients treated with FCR that were not apparent with patients treated with ibrutinib. However, we do note that there may be a higher incidence of atrial fibrillation at 2.9% compared to no uh, patients observed in the FCR-treated group to have this, and also hypertension, which is something we need to monitor for patients treated with inhibitors of BTKI uh, therapy. I want to mention this study because I think it has an important lesson. This is the Alliance study where they compared ibrutinib versus ibrutinib and rituximab versus bendamustine and rituximab. And clearly, again, we saw that uh, the ibrutinib treatment groups fared better than the chemoimmunotherapy treatment groups. But I want to point out that the patients treated with ibrutinib alone seemed to fare as well with the patients as uh, those treated with ibrutinib and rituximab. And I think this is very important to take home because there's very little data to support the notion that the use of ibrutinib in conjunction with rituximab is a benefit with the anti-CD20 antibody. And this is something that we can, in terms of reduced cost, as well as the immune suppression that might be occurred with the anti-CD20 antibody therapy is important to consider. We do note that with many studies, however, that we're unable to clear minimal residual disease with the brutinib-based therapy. And this is true with the ECOG trial that I mentioned earlier, along with the Alliance trial that I just described. And there's another trial, the Illuminate trial. 
seen in the green are patients who cleared uh, MRD, who had undetectable MRD. And clearly it was higher in the patients treated with fludarabine, cyclophosphamide, rituximab. And it's lower in patients treated with the abrutinib arms uh, for all trials. And I think this is important to note because this indicates that typically patients will maintain therapy with abrutinib, but maintain a very uh, good clinical response provided they stay on the drug by and large. Now, this may be a problem because I think some people want a fixed duration treatment. And so the notion has been that maybe patients with mutated antibody genes would go back to taking chemoimmunotherapy. Well, fortunately, we have another drug that can induce deep remission, and that's a drug venetoclax. Venetoclax is a BCL2 inhibitor that's very powerful, can cause lysis of the CLL clone, and achieve very deep levels of remission. And this important study compared venetoclax in conjunction with the monoclonal antibody obinutuzumab, or Gaziva, to chlorambucil and obinutuzumab in patients over age 65, and they were treated only for one year of, of time. And the results of this study show that you can clear MRD, a very high level of clearance uh, in the blood uh, was about three quarters of patients. And if you look in the marrow, which is more sensitive, particularly with the, with the use of anti-CD20 antibodies, you can see that about two thirds of patients may achieve clearance of MRD when treated with venetoclax and obinutuzumab. And in the light green bars is patients treated with obinutuzumab and chlorambucil. Now, if you achieve undetectable minimal residual disease as a response, you can see that your outcome is quite good. However, the frequency at which you clear MRD with chlorambucil and obinutuzumab is significantly lower than what is achieved with venetoclax and obinutuzumab. And this is seen in a variety of trials where they've combined on the, uh, these are all the different combination trials that have been used, venetoclax and obinutuzumab, as I just mentioned, but there's also ibrutinib and venetoclax uh, in the MDCC, MD Anderson um, uh, early trial, and now the Captivate trial, as well as ibrutinib, venetoclax, and obinutuzumab are uh, acalabrutinib, venetoclax, and obinutuzumab. They all can achieve a very high level of response with undetectable minimal residual disease in about two-thirds of all patients. And these patients typically will actually have a very long progression-free survival. Now, we noticed that what is the influence of the mutation status? And you can see this is the CLL14 study that I mentioned earlier, namely venetoclax and obinutuzumab. And if you could see in the green is the venetoclax and obinutuzumab with unmutated versus mutated and there's very little difference between those two, where you can see a clear difference in the blue lines between chlorambucil and um, the obinutuzumab when you have mutated antibody genes versus unmutated antibody genes. I would like to point out that those patients who did have deletion 17P also were noted to have a poor outcome even with this regimen, and this is something that has to be taken into consideration. Now, what about the uh, follow-up studies? We've now had the luxury of being able to observe the outcome of these patients over four years. And you can see that the mutation status may be starting to affect the progression-free survival. These patients received one year of therapy as shown in the shaded blue bar. And now we're following them up for many months after completion of therapy. And you can see that the mutation of the uh, status of the immunoglobulin genes may have some bearing over time and those patients who have mutated antibody genes who are treated with venetoclax and obinutuzumab, or VENG, 
have a apparent longer progression-free survival than patients with unmutated antibody genes. And more has to be done to follow these patients. Now, I'm very excited about the study that's going to be discussed later, which is the CAPTIVATE study, because this will allow us to be able to dissect whether fixed duration therapy versus therapy that might be governed by assessment of the MRD is the way to go. And so on top, we have the minimal residual disease assessment where patients receive three cycles of ibrutinib followed by 12 cycles or 12 months of venetoclax. And then they'll be assessed for MRD and stratified to receive additional therapy depending on that outcome. The fixed duration therapy has already been completed and these patients had similar therapies, but they were able to just observe themselves after completion of treatment. And we see a very striking uh, progression-free survival, although it's admittedly early. We see that all patients, including those patients that have deletion 17P, seem to have a uh, very good uh, progression-free survival, although the follow-up is admittedly short. I would like to say that um, it's interesting in that the patients with mutated versus unmutated antibody genes that's in the red box appear to have uh, similar responses with complete responses. And it's interesting, although not significantly different, patients with unmutated antibody genes almost actually seem to have a slightly higher response rate with a higher complete response rate than patients who had mutated antibody genes. And I think we need to understand more of this. But it's clear that if you look at the presence of undetectable minimal residual disease, patients with undetectable uh, minimal residual disease that the rates were higher for those patients with unmutated antibody genes versus those with mutated antibody genes as assessed than the marrow, as shown in the bottom right of the text. And we have to understand what the significance of this is, but clearly these new targeted therapies are minimizing the differences that we have between patients treated with, uh, with therapy who have mutated antibody genes versus unmutated antibody genes. So just in recap, I'd like to have a few take-home messages. Yeah, it's clear that patients with CLL that use mutated antibody genes have a longer progression-free survival after fixed-duration chemoimmunotherapy than patients with unmutated antibody genes. It's also clear that patients with undetectable mineral residual disease after chemoimmunotherapy have a longer progression-free survival than patients who do not clear minimal residual disease after therapy. Among the patients who clear minimal residual disease with chemoimmunotherapy, those patients that have mutated antibody genes may have a longer progression-free survival than those with unmutated antibody genes. And it almost makes us think that patients with mutated antibody genes may be the ones that we could target for fixed-duration therapy. However, patients treated with abrutinib as initial therapy can have a very long progression-free survival, and that appears to be independent of IgVH mutation status, provided they stay on therapy. And this is quite exciting because it may allow for us to mitigate any differences between the treatment groups. I must say that venetoclax-based treatments are quite exciting because they can clear MRD in most patients after just one year of therapy. But time is going to be required to tell whether patients will benefit from maintenance, either ibrutinib plus minus venetoclax therapy after one year of venetoclax and ibrutinib therapy. So clearly this is a moving target but I must say, we've learned a lot about how to stratify our patients. And for this patient with mutated antibody genes, clearly there are some very important treatment considerations to make, which I hope to discuss further in our discussions uh, later uh, in, with the panel. Thank you very much.
Great. So there you heard uh, Tom's view on you know, the approach that we were having and talking about before in terms of the recommendations for such a therapy that uh, we would, uh, in terms of support of his approach, uh, using uh, venetoclax abinutuzumab as a therapy option for this group of patients. You've seen the data from CLL14. You've seen particularly the really good outcomes that occur in that patient. Uh, group. You've seen also that uh, BTK inhibitors are able to overcome the, the, the poor prognostic feature of the mutation versus unmutated, but of course also have good outcomes. You also heard Tom talk about and kind of <coughs> lead us into what's going to be detailed in, in subsequent discussions, uh, the novel combinations such as the Ibrutinib plus venetoclax combination on the basis of results from Captivate and Glow, and of course you'll see updates on both of those studies at this meeting. And uh, probably that we would not be using FCR in this particular case due to the patient's um, uh, fitness, etc. And I'm going to come back to Tom right now and be talking a little bit more in detail about, uh, I think I know what Tom's view on this is, but it'd be good to hear directly from him uh, on exactly this issue here. So if I can get Tom back online, that would be great on the video. Well, hi, I'm here. Hi, uh, Tom. Hi. Yeah, I Hi, sorry. Tom, a lot of questions coming in that I've got on the pad here uh, about these issues. And of course, you presented the data from the MD Anderson on that outcome of the good, you know, the, the good potential outcome with FCR therapy. And of course, we've seen that supported from the CLL8 trial, from the Italian study. So um, the obvious question there is nobody wants to be thinking about chemoimmunotherapy, but what kind of discussions do you have with your patients about a younger, fitter patient in which there might even be, dare we actually start to use the word curative potential here? And of course, the other important issue there is the kind of the 20-year follow-up study we've got from the MD Anderson versus the kind of the, the three to four-year follow-up we've got from venetoclax abinutuzumab. So how do you have that conversation. I remember from many discussions with you that Californian patients do not like chemotherapy, but uh, how do you kind of go through that discussion with your patients? Well, I think clearly uh, if you had a choice as a young patient, whether to have a fixed duration therapy versus taking a drug for the rest of your life, I would choose the former. And just thinking like the patient, we enjoy fixed duration therapies because if we can get the disease eradicated beyond detection, and have a long progression-free survival before it comes back, who would not want that? I think it's clear, though, that now we have choices, uh, aside from chemoimmunotherapy, with which to achieve the same degree of remission uh, that we enjoyed with very intensive chemoimmunotherapy regimens such as FCR. And I think we need to give this strong consideration. Recognize that venetoclax is actually working through a similar mechanism of chemotherapy and it just short circuits the need for TP53. And therefore, it's acting to actually induce the death of the leukemic cells down to very low levels that cannot be detected. And I think that the outcome of these studies is going to say that venetoclax-based regimens, if used successfully in patients with mutated antibody genes, uh, may actually fare as well as those treated with more intensive chemoimmunotherapy regimens. So I think that this is very exciting. Obviously, I think we should begin to think about whether patients with mutated antibody genes can be put into a fixed duration therapy. Um, and that would be uh, very exciting for patients who have that option. 
I'm going to bring you back after we've heard Farouk's presentation about the Ibrutin and Venetoclax combinations that you're clearly, as we all are, very excited about and be thinking about whether it's the right approach to be thinking we should be doing that in our lowest risk patients where you might get the most benefit versus our highest risk patients where we're wanting to use the optimal agents. But I'll kind of hold that thought for now. But I've got a lot of questions coming in, Tom, about this question about the importance of MRD eradication, which you clearly demonstrated in your talk. But of course, what do we do for that group of patients in whom you measure MRD at the end of a fixed duration venetoclaxabinutuzumab and they are not MRD negative? Is your view to stop, um, or do you, do you consider in that group of patients we ought to be doing something more? Well, I think clearly um, I like to use the term uh, not positive or negative for MRD for the reason that uh, I don't think we can ever say that a patient has no MRD uh, because we have around 10 to the 12 lymphocytes in our body, and our even most sensitive techniques can only measure minimal residual disease down to one in a million. So there's a lot of cells there that we can not really have access to that might contain the leukemia clone. And I was mentioning that clearly there are differences between patients, even after chemoimmunotherapy. Those patients who clear detectable minimal residual disease, who have mutated antibody genes, who have a longer time before having recurrence of minimal residual disease than patients who have unmutated antibody genes that are expressed by their leukemic clone. So I think we have to put this into context of what the patient's history is. And, you know, I reference other leukemias like hairy cell leukemia, where a complete response is felt to be uh, down to a few percent of leukemic cells in the marrow, but patients may go many years without progression. And so I think it's important not to obsess so much on the response per se. I think it's a very useful metric within any individual patient as to the quality of the response. But it cannot be generalized because some patients who have no detectable minimal residual disease may actually relapse faster than patients who have maybe trace minimal residual disease. So I think it's important to look at the you know, patient's clinical history, past becomes prologue. And I do think that if they do have minimal residual disease, we actually monitor that in our clinic. And we are able to see whether patients are progressing in MRD. And that's usually a flag that therapy may be around the corner and we get into discussions about what our next steps should be if they had been treated with the fixed duration therapy. Oh, you preempted my next question beautifully because I was going to ask you about do you uh, do mineral residual disease assessment in your patients? Now, clearly, there's probably no value in doing that on patients on continuous BTK therapy where we very see, see only a very small proportion of the patients becoming negative. But you've answered my question already on, on doing that. Can I just ask the others, do you use MRD assessment in your patients when you're following them now? I mean, Outside of clinical trials? Yeah, so I, I do. But again, similar to what Tom said, I, I do it more for sort of getting a bigger picture about where that's going. And, and hopefully that will provide more meaningful input in terms of how it may be different in different sub cohorts of patients with CLL depending upon their cytogenetics and, and mutational status. So more additional data, but I don't necessarily change what I'm doing for the patient, except as Tom alluded to, as patients may be progressing or we're noticing a change that we have those discussions about what their next options are. But again, the point is to try to provide these individuals with a time off of therapy. And for some of those individuals, uh, despite evidence of uh, a minimal residual disease, they may buy a significantly long period of time off of treatment, many years. So I don't want to necessarily jump in and treat them sooner unless I'm concerned about something. Yeah. Anything different on your end? Uh, yeah. And I think a couple more points to what Nicole and Tom said. 
the first problem is access to the uh, MRD testing, a validated flow MRD testing in the community where uh, the vast majority of our patients are treated is limited. And then also a lot of the patients in the community don't have a baseline marrow sample that you can use the clonaseq assay for. So I think access to the technology is limited. It's, it's not widely available. It's, it's in limited spots. And again, I want to make a point here that the regular flow that we use for diagnostic purposes should not be used as an MRD assessment for patients with CLL. I think that's, that's clear. You need a validated flow-based assay. And there are multiple things that Eric has done primarily uh, that can be utilized to do that. But the other point is that even patients on venetoclax who got MRD negativity with 17P deletion, which is almost like 80% of those patients, despite being on therapy, they did progress. And some of them, if you look at the interim versus the end of treatment MRD assessments, they had progression while on venetoclax. And so that comes back to what Tom said. Ultimately, it's the disease biology that matters. I think that trumps everything. So while the MRD is a good tool to have, I think we all want to get patients into as deep a remission as possible. I'm not sure if that's going to be the eventual fix for all our patients. I think disease biology still wins because it's evident that MRD doesn't matter in 17P patients and probably the unmutated patients because they progress just like other people and it doesn't really seem to matter. So good tool to have. I'm not sure how to use it. Okay, we're going to move on, but I've got to say, I just Tom, just to let you know, I just uh, um, that somebody's just come in saying, just wanted to express my appreciation for a great presentation by Dr. Tom. Um, and I'd like to point out that nobody sent any such message to me, so thank you very much. <laughs> great, great job, Tom. Just uh, the CLL Society toolkit test before treatment campaign uh, can be shared with patients when discussing your treatment plans provides the guidance for patients on the testing recommendations. I am getting lots of questions in about basically saying, well, if things like BTK inhibitors overcome the prognosis factors, do we still need to do it? But I think what you've been hearing is we are using the information to make choices about the therapies. And as we get more choices available, for instance, the combinations, it'll probably be the case that even more so we'll be looking towards uh, doing exactly that. So, on this point, we're going to go on and look at the relapse refractory CLL session. In particular, we're going to be thinking now about how we can think about sequencing from one novel agent to the other. What's the data? What should we think about in terms of doing that? And again, we're going to take this through a tumor board. So let's imagine now that in Theo's case, we had initiated therapy with venetoclaxabinutuzumab. We had done all the appropriate counseling on the potential of events such as neutropenia and TLS. We did a pre-treatment CT scan to assess the burden in terms of his TLS risk assessments. Got treated with venetoclax benetuzumab. He did have some low-grade neutropenia, for instance. We'll talk about that, I'm sure, in a moment. And uh, successfully managed with some dose reduction. However, um, after uh, achieving remission for one year after treatment, as, he, uh, as we'd expect from the data that Tom presented, three years later, he returns to clinic with progressive lymphadenopathy and night sweats. So if he relapses after receiving upfront venetoclax uh, abinutuzumab, but there's no change in the comorbidities, what are our treatment options? Well, we could re-challenge with venetoclax plus an anti-CD20 monoclonal antibody. 
We could sequence to a BTK inhibitor in the setting. Also, of course, we could continue to watch and wait. We can do the same thing in the relapse setting we do in the, um, the upfront setting. That is, continue, continue to watch this patient and see when we have to reinitiate therapy. Uh, and we're going to, I know you're going to come in, and I won't question you on this one, but um, any views on how you might look to treat that patient briefly? So I will start off by testing for uh, resistance um, right here. I think there's multiple NGS panels available uh, which we can use to test for BCL2 resistance and also BTK resistance. So I'll start with that. Obviously, if there is the presence of that, then uh, venetoclax would not be an option for me. And then I'll go to BTK inhibitors. Well, I was just going to point out here, of course, these two scenarios are about patients either being intolerant to a BTK inhibitor versus becoming resistant. And those are very different scenarios in our mind. What we've seen, of course, from the, most of the data that's being presented is, in fact, it's more likely at the moment that patients will be intolerant to ibrutinib than actually progress on it. But I think, Nicole, you're going to come back and talk about exactly that issue. So, uh, obviously, here, um, if a patient is... Um, Intolerant to ibrutinib, you know. Then, okay, now, what's your yes. what's your view on what you? I think doing? if if they are truly intolerant, um, and then I think the response of three years with venetoclax was not a very impressive response in my mind. So my inclination to use venetoclax again, it's it's fine to use it, but I don't think that that would result in a sustained remission, in my opinion. So I would probably switch to BTK inhibitors if they failed prior BTK inhibitors. If they were intolerant to ibrutinib then I would go with acalabrutinib. I still consider them the same generation. I just call them a newer generation uh, because the true second generation ones are still not available. Uh, but in the third scenario, if they've truly relapsed, I think those are the patients that I really worry about because those really have aggressive disease biology. I'll switch them to venetoclax. I will get ready for a CAR-T or an ALO approach as my backup. Uh, at that point when I'm starting venetoclax. Yeah, we'll come back and talk about that scenario yeah. very shortly. So um, here you're hearing, so our kind of views at the moment is that for the first scenario, we would probably be thinking about uh, initiating BTK inhibitor. I think that duration of response isn't really long enough for us to consider going back to VenG um, or VenR, as it would be in this scenario. Um, if uh, he ha was intolerant to ibrutinib, we would consider sequencing to a second-generation BTK inhibitor. And if he relapsed upon receiving ibrutinib, we'd be going straight into venetoclax. And this is a group of patients that I wouldn't be watching and waiting. These patients can really have explosive disease very rapidly. And it's almost like a, an emergency situation when patients are becoming resistant to BTK inhibitors in terms of their management. So let's hear the data that supports those arguments. Nicole, over to you. Okay, so I'm gonna cover the relapse refractory data a little bit. And so now, similar to what you saw in the treatment naive setting, we have obviously also major phase three studies looking at BTK inhibitors and venetoclax as options in the relapse refractory setting. So here's the resonate uh, relapse study with ofatumab versus ibrutinib. And here you could see the median PFS in relapse was 44 months with ibrutinib versus eight months with ofatumumab. 
the ASCEND study, which looked at uh, the either physician choice of idelisib, rituximab, or bendamustine or rituximab versus acalabrutinib in the relapse setting. Uh, and again, there'll be an update at this meeting, so the three-year follow-up, the PFS not reached with acalabrutinib versus 16.8 months, whether the patients, uh, again, the, you had a choice of either idella rituxa or bendamustine rituxa, so that was composite data of the two. So that presentation is on Sunday. Uh, and then the Murano data, which has been alluded to earlier in the relapse refractory, bendamustine rituximab versus venetoclax rituximab. And here we have some nice longer-term follow-up with the five-year data where the median PFS has now been reached at 53.6 months uh, with ven, ven rituximab versus 10 months with bendamustine rituximab. So here's some very nice long-term follow-ups uh, looking at both BTK inhibitors and uh, venetoclax as options for patients in the relapse setting. So looking at, we're going to talk a little bit about the safety of these agents and, and also obviously the resistance because that can help inform what you're going to choose your patients after when you treat them in the frontline setting. Um, and as you know, there's lots of real-world data that exists, and many of these are retrospective, of course, but clearly we have two large experiences. One was U.S.-based, the other was an experience by the Danish, uh, looking that not only did patients, you know, many of the reasons were not necessarily due to progressive disease itself, uh, but many of them discontinued due to adverse events. Um, and of course, a lot of this was centered, remember, Abrutinib was the first to market, and so we're very <laughs> pleased with some of the data that we have as, you, as we looked at it with the treatment naive and how we have such long-term data in the treatment naive uh, setting that's emerging. But clearly, we know that patients, given that this is a chronic continuous therapy with the BTK inhibitors for the most part, that clearly there are adverse events and, and whether or not somebody, the compliance issues with some of these, whether they're truly nagging versus, you know, very serious uh, are obviously wide range. And folks not on clinical trials have different interpretations about that, but you need to take that into consider consideration when you're treating patients on your chronic continuous therapies. So about less than, a little bit less than half of patients discontinue to adverse events. And most of these occur in the beginning of starting the BTK inhibitors. Uh, many of them improve over time, although some of them uh, still persist. So some of the BTK inhibitor toxicities that the more common ones that many of you know about, of course, the common ones we see are the cardiac arrhythmias, in particular atrial fibrillation, arthralgias, which can be annoying uh, and most uh, sometimes most challenging in some respects. Uh, some are short-limited, but others uh, cannot, uh, you know, sustain therapy because they have persistent uh, arthralgias despite supportive care measures. Um, infection issues, I think we, we are pretty used to dealing with in our chronic lymphocytic leukemia patients, whether in frontline or relapse, uh, and not necessarily uh, completely uh, akin to BTK inhibitors alone. Obviously, we see that with venetoclax and chemoimmunotherapy as well. Um, the GI side effects tend to be uh, more easier to deal with in general with supportive care measures. Uh, hypertension, obviously another big uh, consideration for the BTK inhibitors, uh, particularly because this is one of the side effects that can persist over time, uh, and so that's something that needs to be managed adequately. And bleeding issues, thankfully most of them are not major bleeding issues, most of them are minor, but obviously something we, uh, uh, you know, see in our patients commonly and counsel them on as well. But there are other, you know, little uh, additional toxicities that we see, dermatologic changes, particularly in the nails uh, or hair. Fatigue, if it's not due to another issue, of course, needs to be uh, evaluated. But certainly, some patients do have uh, significant fatigue on the BTK inhibitors. As I said, not all the cardiac arrhythmias are atrial fibrillation. We have some ventricular arrhythmias uh, and cytopenias, which we deal with as well. 
Um, just as a, a, a summary in terms of some of the monitoring approaches when we talk about BTK inhibitors, we try not to give them with uh, concomitantly with warfarin. We try to use non-warfarin anticoagulation. Obviously, new-onset atrial fibrillation, we deal with our cardiology folks and help us uh, manage the atrial fibrillation in addition. Um, now, sometimes this could be a deal-breaker because some patients who have never had issues in the past and then develop atrial fibrillation, don't necessarily want to be on medications uh, because they have new onset AFib and would rather change therapies. And obviously that's a discussion and consideration that we face when we talk about our patients who develop atrial fibrillation in the setting of a BTK inhibitor. Hypertension, I think that obviously this is a class effect and clearly needs aggressive management, uh, both if the patient has baseline hypertension, you want that to make sure that that's well controlled prior to starting a BTK inhibitor. But certainly we, we note it on patients who uh, don't necessarily have hypertension and then may develop it while on therapy. And of course, we'll want to plug them in for appropriate management uh, of their hypertension. And then we're going to counsel our patients about bleeding, signs or symptoms of bruising or bleeding, particularly um, if there's any major signs of bleeding. And of course, if they're going to have any surgical procedures, we'll also discuss with them when they should stop their BTK inhibitor accordingly, depending upon the surgery. Arthralgias, as I said, sometimes can be a little troublesome. Um, usually, uh, some of it is short-term, and that's easier to manage those who occur in the beginning and it goes away. But there are some patients who develop it later, uh, and we'll, of course, try different supportive care uh, management that we can, uh, but some, despite that, will require dose reduction, particularly if it's really impacting their quality of life, uh, or we'll have to hold the dose and see if we can restart or uh, switch to a different agent. And then, of course, we're always going to talk about monitoring infections, regardless if they're on BTK inhibitors or other therapy, uh, and, of course, screening for all our patients for secondary malignancies uh, accordingly. Now, there's been some data that has emerged, again, Abrutna being the first to market, remember, approved in the U.S. in 2013, uh, looking at alternative BTK inhibitors for patients who develop some intolerances to Abrutna-based therapy. And so here is data that came out of Ohio State uh, and presented by Dr. Rogers, uh, looking at a calabrutinib in patients who had Abrutna intolerance and, and demonstrating that patients who go on to a different BTK inhibitor, their response is still very good. Uh, and you can see from the patients who had Abrutna intolerance, whether it be AFib, diarrhea, rash, bleeding or arthralgias, uh, that certainly those who might have experienced uh, the similar intolerance on a calabrutinib, generally speaking, were of lower grade or same grade. There was also a, uh, data with xanabrutinib, again, not yet approved for CLL, although approved for other uh, indolent lymphomas, uh, but certainly there's some data emerging with uh, xanabrutinib for patients intolerant to either abrutinib or a calabrutinib. And again, similarly, you can see here of the 66 in brutinib intolerant events, that the majority of those did not recur. Of the smaller numbers of patients who had a calibrutinib intolerant events, uh, either they it did not recur or recurred at the same grade. So again, these are obviously less mature data, but a sense of some data that perhaps depending upon the intolerance issue, um, that certainly patients might be able to try a different BTK inhibitor. Uh, in terms of the newer BTK inhibitor, a calabrutinib, sometimes we'll see headaches associated with that agent, and so certainly we'll counsel the patient when they're starting the agent that this may occur, particularly it occurs in the beginning of starting, uh, initiating the calabrutinib treatment, usually very amenable to uh, some Tylenol, caffeine, uh, usually not a reason that patient has to uh, discontinue therapy, so that's usually more manageable. Um, and then neutropenia, we see more myelosuppression a little bit with xanabrutinib in terms of neutropenia, and of 
accordingly, either dose reductions or uh, growth factor support can be initiated uh, depending upon the circumstance. Now, uh, when we talk about comparisons, because now we have some studies directly comparing the different BTK inhibitors. So here you have the uh, Elevate uh, Relapse Refractory study that compared a calibrutinib versus a brutinib in high-risk CLL patients, um, and certainly the primary endpoint of PFS, a calibrutinib, was non-inferior to a brutinib, so this was met. Uh, but when they looked at some of the common BTK toxicities that we normally talk about, um, atrial fib or flutter was noted to be lower in frequency compared to a brutinib. Um, so you see uh, 9.4 versus 16%. There was also noted to be a lower incidence of any grade hypertension between uh, and bleeding with a calibrutinib versus a brutinib. Again, you can see any grade was 9.4 versus 23%. Uh, although, uh, and bleeding events uh, noted to be 38 versus 51%. So a sense that some of the adverse events uh, with a calibrutinib versus a brutinib might be lower in frequency. Then we also have a little bit of data from Xanabrutinib, although again, remember the time of follow-up is shorter for this study. In the Alpine trial, uh, we're looking at Xanabrutinib versus Abrutinib in the relapse refractory setting. Here you can see they note an overall response that was improved with Xanabrutinib at 78 versus 62% for Abrutinib. The median PFS uh, follow-up was 14 months uh, for both these arms. And again, this was not a, a pre uh, specified analysis, so formal analysis of the PFS, uh, we will be based on all patients when the target number of events is reached. So we'll have to see how that follow-up holds over time. I just want to note that. But when we talk about safety analysis between the two, atrial fib and atrial flutter, similarly to the acalabrutinib data with xanabrutinib, uh, was noted to be um, less in frequency compared to abrutinib, as you can see here. Now let's just switch gears a little bit and talk about safety issues with venetoclax. As many know, the issues we uh, commonly discuss with venetoclax have to do with the ramp up in terms of tumor lysis monitoring. And then of course, there's more myelosuppression that we know with venetoclax uh, versus the BTK inhibitors in general. Um, so this is uh, looking at venetoclax rituximab as compared to more traditional chemoimmunotherapy with bendamustine rituximab. You can see there's certainly more neutropenia um, that we note. So very similar as Tom has alluded to, believe it or not, we, we, there's many uh, more likenesses with venetoclax combinations uh, than with chemoimmunotherapy in terms of the myelosuppression and hence the achievement of deeper levels uh, of response and undetectable minimal residual disease due to that marrow clearance, but there's more cytopenias as well. Um, so more neutropenia you can see here, um, and of course more tumor lysis uh, with venetoclax here, 3% uh, versus 1% with bendamustine and rituximab. Um, with the, besides the myelosuppression and tumor lysis issues, I think the other major issue that our patients deal with when we talk about venetoclax-based combination have to be dealing with um, some of the GI issues. Um, and that certainly is apparent. So patients can discuss uh, diarrhea, nausea, uh, tend to be uh, many of the other GI-related issues that our patients on venetoclax-based combinations face. Um, usually it's more in the beginning of starting the drug, but certainly there are patients who can have this over time, oftentimes uh, we'll counsel them, uh, we'll give them supportive care measurements if they're having diarrhea um, or constipation or antiemetics for the nausea. So again, when we talk about managing some of the adverse events with venetoclax-based combinations, uh, again, TLS. Now, initially, of course, you're going to evaluate your patients based on their 
risk of disease, so if they're high risk or high white count, or bulky lymphadenopathy, those are the ones that more are high risk for tumor lysis and whether or not they need to be admitted to the hospital for their ramp up um, is a consideration, or if they have poor renal insufficiency or are older or frail, so you have to take that into account. But you're gonna risk assess the patient prior to starting therapy. Myelosuppression, as noted, um, if dose sometimes patients need a dose interruption or reduction uh, and growth factor support if needed. Infectious complications similar to the BTK inhibitors, certainly we see them with venetoclax-based treatment as well. So you're going to treat accordingly your patients with infectious complications. And the GI issues, typically similar to BTKs, mostly the diarrhea, usually can be supported uh, with antidiarrheal agents. Nausea can sometimes definitely be an issue, antiemetics, or sometimes we'll have the patient change the time that they'll take their uh, agent sometimes to the evening time, and that might work better accordingly. So that's a little bit about toxicity, but what about resistance? Um, and again, so when thinking about sequential therapy, so we talked about intolerance, so possibly switching to a different BTK, uh, but what about resistance? And obviously now that we have some long-term follow-up from the initial abrutinib studies that patients who have started to develop uh, resistance to BTK uh, therapy, uh, we clearly have identified certain BTK-resistant mutations, the most common being the BTKC481S mutation, uh, but also PLC gamma mutations are, are also detectable. And there are some patients who have neither of those, but clearly are progressing either based on their blood counts or progressive lymphadenopathy. So clearly you can, um, we will try to test for these, as Farouk had noted, try to test for the resistant mutations in patients who are developing progressive disease. Uh, but you can see here, so the other reason obviously besides intolerance is progressive disease with um, a resistant mutation that can develop over time. So what do we do for our patients or what is considered? Again, these are not yet approved, but certainly uh, we have some non-covalent BTK inhibitors that are uh, it being evaluated. Some are further along in development than others. This is data on pertubrutinib. This was presented previously at earlier meetings. Uh, as well, but this is a non-covalent BTK inhibitor that does not bind to the C481S and can overcome BTK-resistant mutations. This will also be updated at this meeting, so there's a presentation uh, on Sunday at 9.30, uh, 9.30 a.m. for those of you interested. Um, and so similarly, so this was a heavily pre-treated group of patients, um, and some of them discontinued for intolerance issues, but some due to progressive disease. Some of these patients already had previous uh, treatment with a BCL2 inhibitor venetoclax, and many of them had BTK uh, C481S mutations. And the overall response here uh, was 62%, and even you could see the breakdown, even those who had uh, prior BTK resistance or intolerance or mutations. Also, in terms of the side effects of this uh, agent for the non-covalent BTK inhibitors, uh, they do not uh, note many significant side effects similar to the, what I presented earlier on acalabrutinib and xanabrutinib. Um, the adverse events of interest seem to be low in frequency, obviously less immature data, and we'll need to follow up uh, with longer follow-up over time, but seems to be very tolerable so far. You can see the evidence of atrial fibrillation, hemorrhage, and hypertension accordingly. So in terms of patients who might be, who uh, develop either a progressive mutation on a BTK inhibitor um, who are refractory um, or intolerant, uh, you know, obviously venetoclax, the BCL2 inhibitor, certainly can be utilized. And this was, as we looked at those cases earlier on, 
that John presented with Theo, certainly for patients, another option is going to a BCL2 inhibitor if they have not had one yet. This is some of the initial data actually um, looking at venetoclax as monotherapy. Remember, it is also approved as monotherapy um, besides in combination with the CD20 monoclonal antibodies. Um, and certainly it was looked at initially for our patients with deletion 17P accordingly, um, you know, for, particularly for the patients who became abrutinib uh, refractory. Um, and so this was a heavily pretreated group, median number of four prior therapy, and the overall response here was 70%. And again, a significant proportion of them were, uh, had a deletion 17P. So certainly going to venetoclax if you're abrutinib refractory is certainly an option for those patients. And then fast forward more recently, to the Murano data, so subsequently then the venetoclax CD20 monoclonal antibody trial data became available. And now we have a long-term follow-up in this data set uh, with about five years of data that really has shown the difference between uh, venetoclax rituximab in the relapse refractory setting compared to bendamustine and rituximab chemoimmunotherapy. And you can see here a very nice long-term median progression-free survival at 53.6 months uh, versus 17 months with bendamustine and rituximab. And again, think about this. This is in the relapse refractory setting. So this is pretty impressive data. This is different than the VENG in frontline, which was 12 months in duration. Remember, this is two years, 24 months in duration of therapy. But even after they completed, you could see um, here um, in the end of line of therapy, you could still, you could see that even after uh, completion of therapy, many patients achieved uh, durable remissions long-term uh, being off therapy. There you go. So we can recap. We can now recap. Wonderful. So, um, we, I mean, uh, Nicole's presented the data demonstrating to you why we would consider um, in this patient that we've got very good data from Resonate and Ascend. Although, in fact, the number of patients who'd actually had venetoclax going into these studies is actually quite small. So you're, you're left just extrapolating, if you like, the data. Now, you're absolutely right. There's enough data from studies like Jeff, et cetera, for us to be able to say, yes, we can do that. But uh, you've got to go back and remember that the number of patients, when these trials were set up, venetoclax wasn't licensed. So there were hardly any patients that went on. In fact, there were no patients on Resonate who'd had venetoclax. We do have data that to support that any of the BTK inhibitors uh, can be useful in the setting of somebody who's relapsed after VENG, and we're seeing increasing data, and we will see more data at this meeting on much of that, and I'd recommend you go and see those sessions. In terms of becoming intolerant, we've got very good data to suggest that, yes, you can move to another second-duration BTK inhibitor, and of course, relapsing after receiving ibrutinib therapy upfront, you presented very nicely, of course, the data looking to be thinking about the mechanisms uh, of using other venetoclax or a non-covalent inhibitor in that setting are uh, you know, things that we're really interested to see. Um, <laughs> I'm almost hesitating because a whole bunch of the questions coming in asking you the questions I hesitate to ask, which is, Looking at the data that's out there on the BTK inhibitors, um, anything that's going to make you think about one particular uh, second-generation BTK inhibitor after the other ones we have the choices, I, I do hesitate to ask. I understand if you don't want to give a very precise answer, and of course we don't I have know, any for, I know Farouk's opinion on this. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. Uh, so it, these are uh, discussions that 
Um, we have almost on a monthly basis uh, as being part of various guidelines, uh, development committees, you know, this is a very heated debate. Uh, everyone has their own preference. Everyone has their own biases, likes, and dislikes. We get comfortable using a certain drug, and we want to stick to that because uh, we know how to manage the side effects. Uh, I don't think there's a clear winner. I think there is a trend of improvement or less toxicity with xanobrutinib or acalabrutinib, respectively. So you can make an argument. Uh, I would say, and I would argue at this point, that we have the longest-term data with the brutinib, so it's a little premature to categorically say that this is an outright winner. Um, so I think uh, this is a discussion that we have with the patients. And as we've seen over and over again, the, the number of patients who are able to continue a brutinib without any toxicity is it's pretty substantial once they get beyond the 6-12 month uh, time frame and the adverse events tend to plateau. The other issue is about the T-cell uh, function or T-cell impact on, of a brutinib. Will that result in a better sustained remission seven, eight, ten years down the road, we don't know the answer to that. The data is very provocative with acalabrutinib and xanabrutinib, so I think they're definitely looking a little bit cleaner, uh, but I don't think it's a slam dunk right now. So I'm not, I think all three are on the table. Uh, the more, the merrier, because patients have more options. Um, that's how I look at it. Now, Nicole, I think we're all, I think, very impressed with the Bruin data on pertubrutinib. Um, not just in terms of its efficacy in those resistant and tolerant, but, you know, really resistant patients. But, of course, it also does appear to have a really favourable side effect profile. Do you think, um, and I'm going to put you on the spot this time, do you think when it becomes available that we'll be looking to move, or do you kind of looking to keep that drug, in, kind of in the same way that we treat our CML patients, keep those drugs which are for the resistant patients just for the resistant patients? What's no, absolutely. I mean, I think it's going to need longer-term follow-up. Uh, for now, um, for sure, what's the great advantage of that is having another drug in our armamentarium to treat patients who have resistant disease because then you can sequence them between you know, a covalent BTK inhibitor from either venetoclax or non-covalent BTK inhibitor and do that. Uh, but certainly until we have more mature data, but certainly there'll be clinical trials moving uh, either uh, combination strategies with pertubrutinib more in obviously less heavily pretreated patients that aren't necessarily those who have just resistant mutations. So I do think you'll see uh, emerging data that will use it in that way as well. Uh, but currently, I'm still going to use it until we have longer-term follow-up in sure. the resistant mutation patients. Well, as always, I've got literally dozens more questions we could go on to, but I think the best thing for us to do is get on with the next presentation, and then we'll have more time at the end, hopefully, to be able to come back and discuss this with all four of us uh, together. I'll just again remind you uh, about the CLL, CLL Education Toolkit, which uh, provides information which you can uh, point your patients towards to help them understand uh, what it is we are talking about here. So now we're going on to be thinking about novel combinations and uh, CAR T-cells and where these might uh, fit into our treatment algorithm. So let's uh, look at um, what about if Theo had initially presented with features that might be not ideal for continuous therapy. That is, now he's got exactly those comorbidities that Nicole highlighted as being the ones we worry about a bit more in terms of continuous BTK therapies, uh, hypertension, atrial fibrillation, he's mutated, he's got no TP53 mutation, but here now he's got complex karyotype. Now we hadn't talked about complex karyotype directly, although Tom alluded to in his discussion 
about this being a higher risk group of patients. So if you've got one of these very high risk groups of patients, what might you potentially do a little bit differently? So um, he's got these scenarios. So for, you're going to be discussing this. So Nicole, I'm going to put you on the spot here again. Uh, what do you consider about in this type of patient? What would be your thinking in terms of looking at, would this be somebody in whom you'd consider a fixed duration VNG approach? Would you look for a BTK inhibitor? Or is this the sort of patient you'd already be potentially thinking about that combination? Remembering, of course, we were talking to Tom, we're discussing whether that IV combination might have its highest efficacy in the good risk patients or whether this might be the scenario which we want to do. So how would you kind of think about that? Yeah, patient? I mean, this is a, obviously a complicated patient um, because of the scenario proposed. And clearly, you might consider doing a fixed duration VNG uh, if you think that, that that's something that's uh, certainly feasible and he can handle given his other comorbidities. But, you know, always when we're thinking about a patient with a complex karyotype, we're always looking to... Uh, see whether or not a combination might be uh, suitable, a different combination might be more suitable. So certainly a, a BTKI venetoclax platform would be uh, a good fit for him as well uh, in terms of, and again, he does have hypertension and atrial fibrillation. It doesn't mean that you can never use a BTK in that scenario, uh, but certainly something that's time limited, there might be less toxicity with that versus chronic continuous BTKI inhibitor-based therapy. Uh, and certainly the doublets and the triplets very look very interesting, uh, but certainly will need longer follow-up. So I think these are uh, both potential options for him. Well, let's uh, go on then and uh, hear that data because I think here you're saying that we need more information. So let's hear exactly that. And I've done such a bad job of uh, moderating this. I've run a little bit behind. So if you could just uh, speed up just very slightly, that would be great to give us more time at the end. So with that, um, I'll try to wrap this up and stay on time. We've uh, discussed this a lot um, in various sections. So we've talked about the Captivate studies. So the whole idea is uh, we all want to improve outcomes. And, you know, for a 56-year-old Theo or a 75-year-old Theo, there are different mindsets of looking at things. Um, the one way to look at that is for a 50-year-old or a 55-year-old, how am I getting 25 years of survival without symptoms. I think at least that's what I'm thinking when I'm seeing that patient. If you assume that the average life expectancy in this country at birth is around 79, 80 years of age. So if you're thinking like that, I think that makes a huge, um, um, that's a big part of the consideration of whether I want to use time-limited therapy, continuous therapy. People argue about, hey, I don't want to use continuous therapy, but it's not really that big a deal if the therapy is not toxic. And then we talk about cost issues. You know, I also give the examples of diabetes and hypertension. Again, granted, different things. And uh, cost, again, is a major issue. But we're kind of getting towards making CLL. We already have made CLL a chronic illness. So maybe we might want to think of it like that. Having said that, on the other hand, we also want to try to keep our attempt to cure the disease once and for all. And, um, you know, I think that's a good tool. And then that's where the MRD business comes in and CR rates comes in. So I think we have to kind of balance. Uh, we have also discussed that despite the fact that some of these new treatments are extremely uh, uh, effective and get you into a really nice deep remission, people are still relapsing. So ultimately, uh, the disease biology is, is, is the most important thing. Uh, I think... Um, we are seeing it over and over again that people who have still the 17p deleted, possibly the unmutated ones, they tend not to do as well as patients 
without those issues. So it's, it's, it's a fine balance and it's a discussion. Every patient is different and it's a constant discussion. So I think it makes it challenging to talk about it because uh, there is not one answer, but then nobody's right and nobody's wrong. So that is the advantage. All right, so um, can we combine the two most active therapies that we have, a BTK and a BCL2 inhibitors, and then see if that can improve outcomes? I think that was the philosophy of going that route a few years ago. And um, we also know that the antibodies are more effective in the peripheral blood, venetoclax is more effective in the marrow, and then uh, ibrutinib is again, it's our acalabrutinib or xanabrutinib for that matter, the BTK inhibitors. They work in different compartments. If you combine them, you get a synergistic response and you get a deeper response in theory and also in preclinical models. The toxicity profiles are non-overlapping, so you can get away with combining them. And theoretically, you can shorten therapy, shorten uh, the development of, or decrease the development of resistance. So I think all of those were the reasons why people have moved towards um, time-limited combination therapy with all of these novel agents. And we've talked about the Captivate study before, so I won't go into it too much, but the fixed duration uh, part is done. The MRD-based assessment is ongoing, and as we know from previous presentation and even at this ASH, that the patients who stop uh, or continue on placebo or versus ibrutinib in MRD-positive or unconfirmed or uh, confirmed undetectable MRD cohort, they tend to have similar outcomes. Follow-up is still short, uh, but it's, uh, it seems to be consistent over one and two years. So looking and promising that patients may not need the maintenance therapy after you do a time-limited um, 12 months of um, concurrent therapy or combination therapy. The other important point about this was that if you start with a three-month run-in with a brutinib, the incidence of tumor lysis is, is much is it's insignificant with venetoclax. So that's, uh, again, uh, important. We're seeing deep responses. We're seeing MRD uh, levels that are pretty impressive. Uh, having said that, I think if we step back and look at those historically in CLL all the way back to the FCR era, we haven't really crossed that 60% CR barrier Everything is in the 40 to 60% range. So while these look promising and uh, impressive, it really isn't any different than what we've seen with other really effective therapies in the past. So promising results. Uh, we have to see what the durability is, and we'll have to keep an eye on it. But so far, so good. Similar study, kind of like the CLL14 comparison arm uh, with the ibrutinib and venetoclax, same thing, lead in with ibrutinib, add the venetoclax for 12 cycles, and then stop therapy. And uh, we have these for the patients who would not cons be considered ordinarily for more intense treatments and with comorbid conditions. No uh, surprises here, ibrutinib plus venetoclax is clearly superior as compared to benetuzumab and chlorambucil. Um, uh, again, I don't uh, have to say anything about that. We, as expected, the depth of response was higher uh, with um, the Brutinib and Venetoclax combination, uh, very promising. We will have updates later on. We were also getting deep remissions in the bone marrow. And um, all of these are, appear to be fairly well tolerated. In terms of the side effect profile, we're seeing the usual cytopenias uh, in the combination arm with the brutinib and venetoclax. Um, almost half the patients get some sort of issues with that. Infection, again, is an issue with 
pretty much any of our agents uh, and the disease itself. Atrial fibrillation, anytime you have a BTK inhibitor will always be a concern, bleeding will be a concern, hypertension will be a concern, but those don't appear to be any different than what we've seen historically um, uh, in multiple clinical trials. I think it's in the same ballpark. So it looks like a, a fairly reasonably well-tolerated uh, regimen, time-limited, you get the depth of response. Same argument as before, we need to see longer follow-up and we need to see the different cohorts. This one did not have the 17P deletion arm, so we won't have that information, but at least we will have the mutated versus unmutated separation, and we can see that outcome, because that would be interesting to see. Um, this was, again, an effort a few years ago that we did with triple therapy, same argument. We combine three of the most active drugs we have, and we get into a very nice deep remission, um, so this is what we expected, and it has robust activity. Um, median follow-up uh, is, again, short. We will have updates in the future, but this is a, another option for our patients. Combine all three, stop after 18-ish months of therapy, and be done, because you start the venetoclax in month three and go for 12 months. So 15 to 18 months of therapy with triple therapy. AVO is another option, so you know we come, keep coming up with these alphabet soups, you know, AVO, IVO, uh, Zanabrutinib has that study too. So uh, pretty much all of these are attempts to shrink the duration of therapy, deepen the response, improve outcomes uh, with time-limited therapies. So very, very impressive results with acalabrutinib, venetoclax, and obinutuzumab. Uh, in the treatment naive groups, we're seeing uh, um, pretty much all patients across all um, disease histologies and uh, biologies respond very nicely. Uh, no, so no surprises, including patients with the uh, TP53 mutations. I think those patients are also respond responding very nicely. Um, it's not as good as patients without those uh, mutations, but that's to be expected. We are also seeing bone marrow MRDs, we're seeing peripheral blood MRDs. So this is, again, um, an option. We will see how this evolves and becomes the standard of care. Uh, this study is another important study in the sense that it'll answer the question about the triple therapy versus the doublets. So I think that arm, for me, is the most interesting piece. The chemotherapy is kind of irrelevant, uh, but you know the, it is what it is. That's the study that we have. But it'll be nice to see if we can see some separation between the doublet and the triplet. And uh, I don't anticipate that there would be any surprises here, that the BRFCR would be inferior, and I think we know that already. So that's a foregone conclusion. It'll meet its primary endpoint. <laughs> arm A versus arm C. I don't think that's a, that's a mystery here. But again, some useful information might come out of this particular trial of the doublet versus triplet. We have to talk about Zanabrutinib. It's looking very promising, very effective therapy, appears to be better tolerated than Abrutinib. Uh, so I think this is an important advance in the field. Um, you can, it doesn't seem to have as many interactions as the other drugs. So very effective option for our patients. Uh, combination therapy with obinutuzumab and venetoclax, the bovin regimen, same, same trend that we have seen. We're seeing deep responses, early responses, and even in the uh, bone marrow and in the peripheral blood, obviously. So I think that's another important advance. Um, all of these studies across the board, we're looking at 
almost, again, depending on where you draw the line, if you draw the line at MRD4, MRD5, MRD-6, wherever you draw the line, you're seeing anywhere from 60 to 80 to 90% MRDs when you combine these novel therapies. So I think all of this is looking very, very promising. Obviously, the deeper the MRD, the longer you expect the remission to last. Uh, so good step in the right direction with all of these agents. Which one is going to win out? I think it'll be the same discussion, which triplet or which doublet is better than what monotherapy. I think it's the same discussion that we'll keep having for the next four or five years. So uh, this is uh, an important time in our field as we move towards uh, developing all of these novel therapies. We were talking about the second, the true second generation drugs, the Loxo-305, the pertobrutinib, and the ARQ-531 or MK-1026 now. Both those drugs, as Nicole said, at this point, I'm saving it for when patients truly progress on BTK inhibitors because it gives me some comfort that my patients have access to that option, just like they have access to venetoclax if I don't decide to use venetoclax up front. So that's one of the arguments for having something in, in the bag for those patients who progress. But obviously, uh, the development plan for most of these agents is to move it further up the line. And there are multiple trials that are ongoing, um, which are now utilizing the LOXO compound and the MK compound in relapse settings and also possibly in the untreated setting. So the next point is, which of the BTK inhibitors are you going to use in those settings? So I think the field is getting more and more complicated. It's a good problem to have. I think our patients are benefiting from this. Uh, but we're still not curing anyone. I think that's the, that's the problem. And can we actually get to a point where we can put people in, in a sustained remission um, until they die of uh, old age? But again, we need long-term follow-up for that. And some people can argue that FCR does that in some patients, um, but it does come at a price. So maybe if you're willing to pay the same-ish price, same toxicity, possibly different types of toxicity, but you know, kind of this is a slightly more toxic approach, possibly, uh, maybe CAR T is that answer. Maybe we can functionally cure some of our patients. And so I think we have now some early data, short follow-up, small number of patients, but CAR T cell appears to be very effective for a number of lymphoid malignancies. And um, it's, it's, the field is just exploding. And I think this ash is all about cellular therapy. So uh, the Transcend CLLO4 trial, the Lysocell study, uh, is an important study. Uh, it's ongoing and it's accruing very quickly. Um, fortunately, this subset of patients uh, is not that many. So that's why these studies will take time, which is a good problem to have. But it had basically third line for patients without the high-risk features and second line onwards for patients with the high-risk features. So pretty bad actors, patients who failed BTK and BCL2. And then this was a study that was evaluating the exact dose that you would give to those patients. Um, very impressive response. And we all know, and uh, John mentioned this briefly too, patients who are intolerant to brutinib or uh, BTK inhibitors, they actually do just fine and they can enjoy a nice treatment-free window before the disease progresses, and then you can put them on something else. But patients who are truly progressing on BTK inhibitors, and same thing for patients who are truly progressing on venetoclax, you better have a plan ready to go before you stop the old therapy. Uh, and so a lot of times we do uh, bridging or overlap between those two treatments. 
So these are bad actors. These are patients who are truly progressing post-BTK and or venetoclax-based therapy, so two or three lines or beyond. So in that particular bad actor group, uh, the study was very impressive. You're seeing anywhere from high 30s to 60s percent in that ballpark. You're uh, looking at complete remissions uh, and a bunch of partial remissions. We're looking at almost 80 plus percent uh, response rates in those patients. But that's not really important. Uh, what's important is durability. Yes, it's good to start off with MRDs. It's good to start off with complete and overall responses. But ultimately, are we seeing the curve plateauing? And again, it's too early to make that um, call because we only have a few patients at the two-year mark. Uh, but eventually, we'll get there. Uh, hopefully, we'll uh, have more patients treated with this particular agent and multiple other similar agents in the future. Uh, but the curve does seem to be plateauing. Uh, we have seen this with other cellular therapies. Initially, you have relapses within the first one to three months, and then following that, if patients are in a complete remission, they tend to stay in remission. I think it's a little early to make that call, but it's looking very promising. There is some disease stability, at least in a subset of patients. I think we all are aware of some of those patients three, four years out who are actually doing just fine and without evidence of disease. So very impressive treatment option for our heavily pretreated patients who ordinarily would not have any options other than clinical trials. Uh, this does come at a price, and the price is of uh, infectious complications, uh, immunosuppression, uh, cytopenias, sustained cytopenias can be an issue in some patients which can go on for months and months and can be very annoying. Um, one big concern was cytokine release syndrome and neurotoxicity that doesn't appear to be that big a deal. And I think as we've all grown up with CAR-Ts over the last few years, we can manage those events much better. And similar to that uh, our experience, you know, this was the early use of steroids and tocilizumab. So the, the, in the incidence of high-grade CRS and neurotoxicity was fortunately not that high. Uh, similarly, neurotoxicity, we're still seeing in the 15 to 20%. Most of those are low-grade events like confusion and so on. Uh, the vast majority of patients will actually go through this without any issues. And I think our supportive care is getting better and better every day. So very promising early results with cellular therapies in CLL. So we'll continue to debate about time-limited versus uh, uh, ongoing concurrent sequential combination doublets and triplets, second and third generations or first and second generations. Uh, so I think the, it's great times for our patients uh, and as practitioners, uh, I think uh, we now have tons of options. So with that, I'll just wrap it up and uh, back to John. So um, thanks so much. Um, as, as I said already, I've kind of none, not this wonderful job, but we're going to just extend a little past the, uh, our allotted time, just take a bit more time for questions. Um, so what you've heard here is that there is a lot of supporting evidence um, in, from studies such as Captivate and GLOW. Clearly, we need longer-term follow-up, but this is a very attractive options. Again, lots of questions coming in. So if we can get Tom back online again, that would be great. And um, what I'd kind of probably like to do is spend a fair bit of the time we've got left thinking exactly about who is the patient we might be considering the I plus V combination for. 
So, Tom, you, of course, alluded to in your presentation about how a good favorable risk patient might, in your mind, be a really good patient for the combination in terms of thinking that might be a patient whom you could really get very durable responses with this type of combinations. Now that you've seen Farouk's presentation in total, of course, you know the data, but um, what's your thoughts? Are you already using this combination? Uh, and, you know, if not, why not? And um, if... Um, uh, and as it becomes more widely available, what is your kind of mindset of who are the sorts of patients that you would do do it for? As I already alluded to, you could say that, well, we use it for the patients you've alluded to, the very good risk patients to try to go for that elusive cure, or the higher risk patient thinking that this is the combination that might get a more durable response. So what's your kind of mindset of where this combination is going to fit? Well, unfortunately, you know, the combination of ibrutinib and venetoclax or some of the other BTK inhibitors have not been approved for use in patients with CLL. And so just to obtain them, you can, but then you have to talk about issues of financial toxicity, uh, whether the insurance companies are going to actually uh, license the use of two drugs that uh, collectively may be 250000 plus a year. That's a big financial burden. And some patients may have coverage through Medicare or third-party insurance, but for some patients, there is a significant out-of-pocket expense. So I think we have to wait and see. I'm hopeful that the costs will come down when we find these combinations to be effective. I know there's some discussion about trying to combine these therapies. Um, one consideration that I also have is uh, the fact that both venetoclax and abrutinib are metabolized by the same enzyme system, the CYP3A pathway. And so staggering the dosage of the medications is probably a good idea to avoid accumulating hard concentration of venetoclax. Uh, but these are more technical considerations. I think from a practical standpoint, I always ask the patient, do not be embarrassed to tell me if you're under financial duress when you're being treated. I've had some patients who have had just with single agent venetoclax uh, have to pay a copay of 4500 a month, and they didn't tell me until after a year of therapy. That's a significant financial burden. So I think hopefully we can uh, devise these treatment strategies without also breaking the bank, and I'm hopeful that the uh, companies manufacturing them will come ways to try and mitigate some of the costs for our patients. I must say, um, I liken back to, we didn't talk about one regimen that some patients are asking for, and that's use of high-dose glucocorticoids and anti-CD20 antibody therapy. I've had some patients who have enjoyed a greater than 10-year duration and ongoing. And if they do relapse, they request having that again because it was well-tolerated. And we're seeing a phenomenal improvement in the immune reconstitution after such therapy within a shorter time than I would have anticipated, provided the patients achieve a very deep response without any detectable disease. And that, I think, is a really good sign that there's improvement not only in the marrow function, which this regimen doesn't tend to uh, abuse, but also in the immune function. So I think there's more to be done, but sometimes we have to really think about, you know, how can we manage it with the practical concerns that patients have? And I think uh, if you wanted to use a combination right now, I think we probably have patients who can segue using ibrutinib as a lead-in to venetoclax. But typically right now, um, the insurance companies will only provide financing for one of these drugs at a time. Yeah, absolutely. So um, with all those 
caveats in place, assuming that, of course, because the, the whole financial argument can be, yes, it's a very expensive year, but it saves you years of continuous therapy with a BTK inhibitor with that cost. Now, obviously, we haven't got the very long-term follow-up of Captivate and Glow to know just how durable these responses would be. But you could, uh, but, and of course, it is the case that in the mutated patients, Tom, where you saw the very good outcomes with VENG, maybe we'll get the same kind of benefit with VENG that we do with, you know, the, the doublets or even the triplets. But in other groups of patients, Nicole, other kind of groups of patients in your mind that you're thinking when we get there and we get approval for these types of therapies, is there a, is there a kind of a group of patients you in your mind are thinking about this is the way that we're going? Yeah, I mean, so I obviously want to, my concern a little bit is with the high-risk patient population in terms of, I mean, they'll get deep responses. We've seen that from the doublets and triplets, even from the short-term data that we have, that across the board there's uh, high levels of response and undetectable uh, MRD. But then how to, you know, looking forward to the Captivate data, longer-term follow-up in terms of those studies of maintenance or not with a particular agent, particularly for high-risk individuals, because we want to assess what the durability of those therapies are for the high-risk uh, patients and also if they're adequately salvaged by restarting uh, therapy later on if they do a time-limited approach such as a, a doublet or a triplet. I think for sure in the uh, good-risk patients, um, I think that's easier. I think those patients do well long-term regardless, and so then you can restart therapy um, uh, later on down the line. So I think for sure time-limited is easy for the good-risk. I'm more interested in seeing what the high-risk individuals do with the doublets or triplets in long-term follow-up. So, of course, just a reminder to everybody that, of course, we're talking here about a combination which you've heard isn't yet licensed or approved. It's being filed, of course, with the EMA on the basis of, of GLOW with supportive data from Captivate. I guess it is reassuring on what we've seen of the MRD arm that in term, it really does look like at the moment it's going to be a fixed duration therapy. We're not seeing a real benefit for continuing therapy in that group of patients. But, of course, we're going to need much longer follow-up. But it, I, I, I guess um, we're left with that uh, financial burden to be still thinking about, if already alluded to. Um, that be an argument, again, for how you'd be looking to monitor these patients with MRD analysis, Farouk? Is that something you'd be considering in those sorts of patients? Obviously, we're doing it in our patients on these clinical trials. And a large part of how we're talking about this fixed duration is, is driving these deep MRD negative responses you showed about, you showed us with. Um, but we're back to where we were when we're talking about other combinations of, you know, once you've got a patient not in a clinical trial, is there, is there any real benefit in knowing their MRD status? Does it only increase their stress levels to know that they're MRD positive? Or is it, does it change your mind about how, for instance, how regularly you might follow the patient? Yeah, I think uh, those are all uh, very important points. Um, do we even, so I think the Captivate uh, placebo versus the Brutinib arm will be probably the most important uh, readout of that trial, and uh, we'll just have to give it some more time to mature. So far, it looks like it doesn't matter if you're on maintenance or not. Uh, so I feel that hopefully once that uh, reads out, we will have more confidence in stopping therapy, at least for a subset of patients. And then in that situation, maybe MRD assessment might be helpful uh, in some patients at the end of therapy. Um, but ultimately, I would say we still have to continue to find uh, the subsets in which it won't work. 
I think that really is the challenge, the 17Ps, the unmutated, whatever the next biology we discover over time as these things evolve. I think it does seem like the biology eventually will trump everything. So uh, if we can continue to identify those patients, I think that would be a more directed therapeutic approach. Okay, well, as always, we are almost uh, completely out of time. I think I've just got a couple of little uh, slides, so I could just go back to the slides just for a moment. Um, so um, it says final question and answer, but we are right out of time. You've heard we've tried to answer lots of the questions. I have to say we've got a huge audience online, which is good to know, but they have been firing lots of questions at it. We've tried to answer lots of the questions as we've gone along. So just as an uh, overview, do remember you can uh, visit uh, this again at peerview.com backwards slash 2021 CLL-Atlanta. You can please remember to complete and submit your post-test and evaluation for credit. You can downline, download the slides and the practice age, and you can, of course, if you've got nothing better to do, watch the replay of this event in the next 24 hours. Uh, and of which will be followed by online activity in the coming weeks. And of course, also within there, we will be looking to upload the results of the polling questions that we asked during the presentation. So all that remains for me is to uh, thank you all for your attendance, both those of you live here today in the room, as well as the much bigger uh, audience that we've got online. For me to, of course, thank uh, Tom and Nicole and Farouk for excellent presentations and to thank our partners at the CLL uh, Society for really putting this forward and, of course, for Peerview for providing all the backup support to be able to provide this program to you. So thank you very much. Have a good day. Enjoy. Be safe. And uh, uh, thank you very much. This activity is certified by Penn State College of Medicine. This activity is developed in collaboration with our educational partners, PVI, Peerview Institute for Medical Education, and CLL Society Incorporated. Thank you for listening. Download materials and complete the post-test for instant credit at peerview.com forward slash FZU860. This activity is supported by independent educational grants from AbbVie, AstraZeneca, Beijing Limited, and Pharmacyclics LLC, an AbbVie company, and Janssen Biotech Incorporated, administered by Janssen Scientific Affairs LLC.